This podcast is produced by BoulderCast Weather. We're a local team of meteorologists that provide weather analysis and prediction, as well as cutting-edge forecast services and graphics specific to Colorado's front range. Find more on our website, bouldercast.com, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at BoulderCast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are reflective of the hosts only and do not represent the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the National Weather Service, L3 Harris Geospatial Solutions, or the United States Air Force. BoulderCast, a bolder take on weather. Welcome to the BoulderCast podcast. This is Andy, and welcoming you to uh, episode 33. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. Hello. Hello there. How's it going, How's it going everyone? It's been a long week again. We always record on Fridays. Here we are. This will be my uh, Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair. Oh, so your weekends are during the week. For this week, at least. What you guys been up to? No, not too much here on my end. Just another week of work. Staring outside of my yard and seeing a lot of leaves are down. It's about that time of year. Probably have to do a little bit of raking this weekend. I'm sure you guys don't have leaves down. Yeah, yeah, I have leaves in the form of rocks (laughs) that just never move. So you you know, I might I might decide to rake those one day. (laughs) Yeah, it's only fair if you have to rake up those leaves one day. Or rocks. (laughs) If I had leaves, I would be raking them. Yeah. Yeah, the, the leaves didn't even turn color yet. They're just falling off the tree. I guess because it's so dry. Hmm. What about the um, what about the aspens? Are, were those pretty at all earlier? So I did go up into the mountains a couple times um, over the last month or so. But the leaves were pretty disappointing, in my opinion. I don't think I missed the peak. I think they were just bad. Okay. They were, they were more like brownish yellow than normal. And the colors weren't as vibrant. Plus, it was really smoky out. So, you know, that takes away from the experience a little bit. Yeah, it, that's true. Is it still hazy out there? Oh, yeah. Very hazy. That's too bad. Yeah. A lot of fire still burning. Yeah. And no relief in sight. No relief. Yeah, you have to really plan your like outdoor activities a little more closely. You get some mm-hmm. brief windows whenever there's good air quality, whenever the wind shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, you got pretty bad air quality most of the day, pretty much every day. So if you get a short window of clean air, you got to go for it. Kind of a weird, a weird uh, paradigm. <laughs> yeah. So what's, what's up with you, Matt? Eh, not too much. Celebrated my 35th birthday this past Tuesday. Wow. A couple so, days ago. Woo-hoo. Happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So just, uh, just going, just going through those motions. Um, yeah getting to that point to where I don't really want to age. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Yeah. 
So going through that, kind of tracking this hurricane from my mom. She's She was a little worried, especially like last Sunday and Monday, whether or not it was going to hit southern Alabama or, or not. So, you know, obviously we know what's going on with it now, so we'll we'll save that for later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looks like Alabama dodged another bullet. They sure did. Well, <laughs> so they I guess you can't really here. say another because, you know, <laughs> they got hit by Sally. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. one, one, one hurricane's probably enough. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's yeah. good. Did yeah. you have any cake and ice cream? Oh, yeah. Or ice whatever. Cake. <laughs> ice cream cake? Oh, yeah, just combine it all into one, save time. Yeah, they're the best. Yeah, you can't. You cannot go wrong with those. The only thing I wish I could do with them is make them bigger, the ones I can <laughs> buy at the stores. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Dairy Queen ones I used to get are just—they really jacked up the price on this. They do. They really do. <laughs> I'm con- Yeah. Con- next year, considering either, um, just make you know making homemade cakes or, or uh, you know. Go do you know coming up with some other game plan? Yeah, but, probably for the best. I just yeah. like good old fashioned ice cream. Yeah, totally. Although <laughs> ice cream down here is very inexpensive compared to my days in Colorado. It's like, really? yeah, I'd say, I'd say almost every single week, one of the grocery stores has a tub of Bluebell ice cream going for like three or four dollars, where it's like seven dollars oh. usually. Wow. Yeah, it's funny. I saw I saw one that was I saw Bluebell was on sale a couple weeks ago and I looked at it. It was it was down to seven thirty nine from its normal price of eight fifty. <laughs> <laughs> Big sale. Big um, sale. Or you could get like seven of the other t- other brand of ice cream. Right. Price. So I can't find that out here. They don't sell it. Darn. Yeah, Bluebell? Uh, at least I haven't seen it. Well, it's a Colorado brand, I guess. Is it? Yeah, they sold it in my southern Maybe roots Texas as well. Brand, actually. Yeah, Texas, I think. Yeah, I think it's Texas and Alabama. Mm-hmm. That's where their big plants are. I see. So, Andy, what have you been up to? Uh, I was had a five-day stretch of days off because uh, the previous week I uh, took over for my other co-worker, he wanted to swap t- days, and yeah, he had a birthday as well. Um, not sure how old he got, but uh, he had a birthday, and he <laughs> wanted to <laughs> spend it with family up in Virginia. So uh-huh. I was like, sure, that means I have to work 10 days in a row. But uh, I get this long five days off, so <laughs> I said, sure. <laughs> so I've mostly been uh, doing outdoor stuff this week. Um, some kayaking on Tuesday. I did a hike. Technically, not a hike compared to Colorado. <laughs> it's more like a stroll. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it does go down to a nice little. Uh, it's called a Raven Rock. It does go down to like the riverbed, I guess, and you see this big rock. But uh, nothing like Colorado, obviously. Now, uh, Andy, let's not make fun of baby <laughs> Appalachians. Let's well, not make fun was, of those little hills. <laughs> this was. The, Oh, this was like not even in the Appalachians. It was like an hour south of Raleigh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so definitely. The Piedmont. Not, not, yeah, the Piedmont. Not, not really a comparison, but uh, pretty, Piedmont. 
pretty in its own right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I did uh, see a map. I know we were talking about, we were talking offline about the Piedmont a couple months ago, maybe. I did look it up, or I did come across the thing where it was showing, like, the Piedmont going, like, all the way into New York and, like, also on the western side of the Appalachians. Do you know anything about that? <laughs> yeah, there's, like, the Northwest Piedmont, which is, like, just uh, extends out to, like, Greensboro and Winston-Salem. Mm-hmm. And then uh, once you get west of there, you get into, like, what they call the foothills. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I thought the whole mountain range was the foothills. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's kind of what I've been up to. Um, nice. Yeah. It's, it's like I was, like, thinking about actually buying a kayak because there's so many rivers out here. Mm. Uh, but I was looking at I looked at REI, and I'm like, okay, that's too expensive for me. <laughs> I'll just rent. <laughs> so Is it, like, have, 600, 800? 600 or 700 for the inflatable ones, and then, like, you can pay up to, like, 2,000. Oh, man. Yeah, they can get pretty pricey. We're, you, that's REI. Looking though. for one ourselves. Yeah. So I've... Uh, Someone I met, she has two, so I didn't have to pay. So she brought hers as an extra nice. one. So, yeah. So you went kayaking? Yeah, on Tuesday. I met her through the pantry I volunteer at, and then she uh, she was like, hey, we should go kayaking sometime. I'm like, sounds good. <laughs> so finally got around to doing it. <laughs> so, But obviously she was way faster than me. <laughs> yeah that's a good hobby to have though you can kayak anywhere yeah it's a good nice thing to pick up when you so, don't have as many mountains so it's always a river there's always a some type of ocean or lake yeah unless you're in the sahara or something <laughs> which even in phoenix, <laughs> or phoenix. Yeah, matt's fine to kayak <laughs> we actually we actually have quite a few rivers mm-hmm yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of strange because you you think of you think of like no water when you think of Phoenix, and yet we have we have like streams everywhere, and you know like if you go if you go to Tucson, you really don't have any bodies of water anywhere. But the moment you start going north towards Phoenix mm-hmm. and and into into Flagstaff, you you actually have quite a bit of water. Obviously, Flagstaff makes more sense, but yeah, even uh, but you know, I I I'm still trying to figure out why Phoenix has so many, you know, so much water, you know, surrounding the area because they average like five six inches of rain a year. Yeah, well, you got a lot of mountains and stuff upstream, I guess. Yeah, snow melt flowing towards the uh, Gulf of California. Yep. Should we dive into our topics for this week? I'm down for it. Me too. (laughs) So, well, just a quick summary of what we're going to talk about. Um, This episode, we're going to discuss the current weather in Colorado and probably across the eastern part of the country with Hurricane Delta making landfall right now. And talk a little bit about La Nina, what's happened over the last month in Boulder. And then we'll get into our lightning round where we're going to talk about what goes into the weather models and how we use them to predict uh, the weather. So that's a really good episode. Yeah. So you want to start us off, Andy, with the current weather? 
you sure you want me to do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know as well as me that it's been sunny and dry in yeah, much of the western United States. Um, pretty much all week we've been in the 80s. Uh, we did have our um, latest, uh, sorry, our, let's see, the day where our previously, our last 90-degree day of the year has already occurred. That was Monday, October 5th. So hopefully we don't have any more 90-degree days. I know Matt was talking about 100-degree days still. Oh, gosh. I've seen some triple digits <laughs> down there in Phoenix still going on. It's still <laughs> going on. It should be over by now. How do you feel about this ridge? Uh you know, I have some I have some negative feelings towards it. <laughs> but, I mean, the fact of the matter is it's finally showing signs of breaking down ever so slightly, but mm. but not as much as the models were indicating earlier this week. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think and I think that you know, obviously this is, you know, looking forward towards Delta, but that, you know, that may have been the reason why Delta was on the path that it was on was because this trough was projected to be so, was projected to be a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. But since, but since it is not, it's more zonal that, well, it's less meridional, you could say, that that's kind of allowed you know, that's kind of allowing Delta to do its thing. And instead, this trough is kind of, you know, it's moderated a bit more than what was originally expected. Because this past Monday, our high here in Surprise, Arizona was supposed to be around 87, 88. And now we're looking at 93. Mm -hmm. With no rain. Yeah. Yeah. The earlier in this earlier in the week, this trough was looking a lot more interesting for Colorado as it um, dove down from the Pacific Northwest. There was actually some good uh, indication that there might be a cutoff low forming in eastern Colorado with some some type of upslope event for us. Definitely colder, but a sign went on that ridge just didn't look uh, to go away as much. The trough looked less impressive. And like you said, yeah, it's really, the model's really backed off on the amount of cooling that's coming with this trough, the amount of precipitation, how far south it's getting. Absolutely. Yep. So it's disappointing, but it still looks like the mountains of Colorado are going to be able to squeak out a little bit of snow over the weekend. I know there was a couple ski resorts that opened up. I forget which ones. I'm, I assume, well, they have to be make, making their own snow. Mm-hmm. Um, like a basin or Loveland or something like that is opening. Yeah. I forget and which one. I think I think another bit of good news for the fire danger in the northwestern United States is place you know places like uh, Olympic National Park, Seattle. They they're mm-hmm. going to be getting like showers all weekend. So there is definitely yeah. some relief coming to portions of the western United States, just not mm-hmm. like we want. Yeah, it's a good point. Looks, it'd be nice if we get that down to California and Oregon with a deeper trough, but yep, this probably isn't the storm for that. Definitely not. Maybe, maybe next week or the following week. 
Yeah, we can talk about it later, but I was looking at the longer range and uh next week, you know, it's kinda like a just a meandering between trough and ridge, but it looks like mm-hmm. like you said, the week after next looks like it becomes quite active. So that could be the, the thing that may tip the tide. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't remember what day you picked for you guys picked for our snowfall contest on our on bordercast.com, but I know I already lost because I said October fourth. Oh, I think yeah. you said like sixth or seventh, Andy, and I don't know what Matt said. <laughs> I said October fifteenth. <laughs> oh, oh you, okay. still, you still got a chance, Matt. I have a chance. Ooh. Except there's a mega ridge next week, so probably not yeah, going to win so that one. Probably not going to happen. <laughs> are, are we are we doing prices right rules? <laughs> I guess at this point it could be Halloween. <laughs> oh goodness! Well, that's the average. So, yeah, the meeting is around uh, October nineteenth. Now, are we considering that very first snowstorm back in September as just a, a, a mega fluke or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, that well, it was a mega fluke. <laughs> to some degree, but <laughs> because technically, that was the first snow of the season. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, we actually we changed the name of the the contest to the second snow contest. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> just because the first snow happened before anybody could have predicted. Right. <laughs> no one's going to predict the historically first snow. I'm not gonna. We're not gonna start running the contest in August. <laughs> so when people are still 100 degrees out. Yeah, we could just joke about you know. We now are going to hold the. First snow of the season contest, and now the second snow of the season contest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to start doing that. This crazy yeah. weather. Yeah. First 90 degree day, March 1st. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Say it ain't so. Yeah, the, the, people, the people in the Facebook comments on, on our Facebook page are really upset about the heat and... Just the lack of snow. Everybody wants snow. Nobody wants another yeah. record-setting day with temperatures. Yeah. As you get into October, you're just kind of, you're done with it, I remember. Yeah. It looks like we've only had possibly like zero point something inches in Boulder of precipitation in the last uh, 30 days. So it's pretty well. Since the snowstorm. That's basically since the snowstorm. We haven't had any precip except for like two spits one day. Well, on September 28th, so it's been very dry. Yeah, it's surprising even with that one, uh, well, that one snowstorm. Uh, we that gave us 1.56 inches for the month, and then the Mm -hmm. average was still like 2.07, so we were still below average for September. Yeah, do you notice that? So, we posted this uh September recap on our website, and then that. Do you see what happens in that September climatology uh, graphic? Oh, yeah. It's way up there. Yeah. Well, yeah. So um, I was thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about, like, how the Boulder flood is going to, which happened in 2013, how, how it's going to change the, the climatology once we kick over to the new decade. So, like, bef- with not considering... So, like, the... the uh, the normal climatology goes from the previous three dec three complete decades, right? Yeah. So right years. now, yeah, yeah, the previous thirty years, like right now, it's nineteen eighty one to two thousand and ten. Mm-hmm. Is the current climatology? 
So as soon as we get into next year, it's going to immediately jump to the 1991 to 2020. And then we're going to get that. Then the border flood's going to get included yeah. in the September climatology. So immediately you're getting like 18 inches of rain dumped into one month. Do you, do you know how much rain Boulder got that year in total? Um, in total, no. I think it was somewhere in the 50s. Goodness gracious. No, it couldn't have been in the 50s. Wait, let me think. Yeah, I don't remember. They were on pace for the wettest year, but it was it ended up being pretty dry, and I think they finished in, like, the top five. Hmm. I think we finished in the top five that year. Right. I don't remember how much it was, though. Man, but that... Why don't they just do, like, a running average of the 30 years? Like, every year just update a new... 30-year average. <laughs> That's what I like to do when I do climatologies. I would think that just, would be the just, most accurate way of depicting it. Yeah, it's... I don't know what the weird decade thing is. I guess I that's guess. like a National Climatic Data Center standard or something. Not sure. You, you know, Andy? No, you don't know either? No. So, yeah, just thinking about those 18 inches of precip getting dumped into the one into the climatology, it's going to increase like the September value from which currently is under. Uh, what do we say it was? Well, well, 2. whatever 0. it is. 2. 0. Yeah. yeah, so that is actually um, that climatology is actually already calculated with the, the previous 30 years. So that's what I was using on there. You can see like right around September 10th or 11th, there's a huge spike going up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. climatology so that's the flood so that's already in there um oh but, okay okay in the gray line there so yeah it's i don't know it's kind of stupid the way they do it but the the, the climate the climatological normal for september is going to jump more than almost three quarters of an inch just because of a weird like decade and change <laughs> but mm-hmm. i don't know that's the way it is, I guess. That's the average for you. can be somewhat, somewhat misleading, I guess. Yeah. Just uh, for the year, real quick, we're, we have 15 inches of precipitation so far in Boulder, 15.02 inches. And that is about two and a half inches below normal. Yes, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we have to get to 21 by the end of the year, so... We need six more inches to get back to average. Probably not going to happen. Oh, it's like, yeah, you can really see it on that uh, plot you made. Uh, it's like mid-July. It just, like, hit the fan. Just like, it just, it's just bone dry after yeah. mid-July, mid-July. Yep. I like that graph. It goes, <laughs> like, you can see above normal, and then it changes colors and goes to below normal. Yeah. Um. But we did have our, let's see, it was, I think, our fifth or sixth snowiest September. So Boulder got 5.7 inches from that one storm that everyone knows about. So it was, yeah. we got some moisture. Hard to beat September 1971, <laughs> 21 inches. <laughs> Yikes. No, I don't know what happened that September. But can you imagine how, like, destroyed all the trees and everything were that year? 21 inches. Wow. We only got six inches from this year's storm, and it was pretty devastating. Though it was much earlier. 
but there's not a there's not a big difference between the foliage in early September versus late September in Boulder. Yeah, a couple weeks. Couldn't imagine it. But, you know, the trees don't really. The trees are really just now starting to lose their leaves. So it's you know October 9th. And this is probably early. I remember when we first moved to Boulder uh, back in like 2010, 2011. I remember making this time lapse. Remember that time lapse I made of the trees? Yeah. <laughs> that were outside of our uh, balcony or whatever. That was cool. <laughs> I think like I think like that was before like GoPros and stuff existed. I think. Line it up, uh, things like that. And I just remember it was like right around. There was basically the trees getting more and more yellow through October, and then like right around like October twenty fifth, they were really yellow. Then there was a huge snowstorm, and then all the leaves were gone. <laughs> <laughs> Right at the end of right right at the end of October, so that's crazy. I remember the one you made that was like a time lapse of the wave clouds. Mm-hmm. I think I remember you showing uh, Dr. Cassano, one of our professors. <laughs> I think he was pretty impressed by it too. <laughs> yeah, there was some epic wave clouds that fall. <laughs> that, that that basically first year when we were in grad school must have been a good like setup for like Northwest flow. Must have been, yeah. Can't uh, remember. I don't remember either. Was that a Lenin year? Could have been. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I'm trying to recall if 2013 was a Lenin year. It was? I'm trying to remember if it was or not. I don't know if it was. So I'm going to look it up. It was not. 2010 was the last nope. and the last strong El Nino or La Nina that we had. Yeah. So what's a La Nina year? Explains those amazing wave clouds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 10 into 11. <laughs> And really, it continued on, yeah, into twelve. So, if, so if that's any indicator of uh, what what we should be expecting this year, mm-hmm. I mean, could could continue to be warm. But then again, two thousand twelve, the uh, the La Nina was beginning to end at the start mm-hmm. of that year, and that was record warmth for color for Colorado, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Yeah, as we spun out of that La Nina, it was super dry and super warm. Yep. We had all the fires. Yeah. And then when I got to grad school in fall 2013 into 14, we had the record snowfall in the mountains that year. Yep. You brought the snow. Sure did. It was horrible the winters before that. (laughs) And I brought a boulder flood. (laughs) (laughs) A boulder flood, apparently. <laughs> yeah, you did. That was good timing. Yeah, well, it was good, good snow to learn how to ski. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, because it was fluffy? Oh, it was super fluffy that year. I think that was, uh, that was a record-breaking year for them. I think, I think this past year was may have broken some records, but I remember that year just being like filled with mountain snow. Yeah, I don't recall that year. It was a total um, blur to me. Yeah, I'm terrible with dates. <laughs> I did want to. Um, we talked a lot about La Nina last episode, so we won't get too too much into it this time. But I did just want to um, update. Um, I did dig into the snowfall record in Boulder's history, which only goes back to the nineteen about nineteen forty eight or so. I guess before that, nobody was tracking snow. Wow. At least on a daily basis. Or sorry, um, a daily basis. Yeah, on, on a daily basis. No one was keeping track of snow. 
But any, but anyways, I was looking to see some of the biggest snowstorms in Boulder's history and comparing what, what happened during El Nino and La Nina. So this was posted on our website as well, but I'll put this graphic in the show notes. But do you guys see that? What do you think about what do you think about the fact that um well these aren't percentages I guess but more than just there our snowfall statistics for big storms are so heavily skewed towards El Nino and away from La Nina. Mm-hmm. I mean it makes sense right with the just the type of storms that we get. Yeah, northwest flow and you get more of the I guess you get more like more numerous storms but each one of them is much weaker compared to like your big storms in El Nino. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not surprising at all. Really interesting research, though. I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever done that before. Kind of look at that. I'm sure someone has done I'd it. I'd be curious if you included like the young, the um, the lower amounts. I can include like maybe six inches. You probably see a skewness toward La Nina, I guess, just based on the trend here, <laughs> where you have uh, um, twelve plus inches. You have out of sixty storms, twelve of those occurred in La Nina years. And then you go up to 20 inches, it's only two storms in La Nina. So, so yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think, I mean, during those El Ninos, it's no surprise that we get, we tend to get more of that, uh, that warm moisture kind of mixing in with the, with the colder air. So it's, yeah, there's like no surprise why El Nino is the way it is, but, mm-hmm. but, uh, I'm, I'd be curious to see this kind of statistic for for the Rocky Mountains. Like, you know, maybe maybe oh, one of the yeah. ski resorts could do a study like that and figure out yeah. which one which one of these phases are more beneficial to to that particular resort. And yeah. I would wonder if the results are maybe a little bit different compared to this because i think i think front range snow is definitely you know more more favorable during all the new years but especially the big storms but as you guys were alluding to but in the in the mountains definitely a different different game because they're not necessarily relying so much on those uh on those cutoff lows yeah like i would think you know steamboat would be favored in la nina years because uh, yeah. the northwest flow, like you say, and, yeah, exactly. And they're because like the mountain range is just to the east of like the town of Steamboat. So like the mountain, I think, is like you know on that western facing the western side. So you get that northwest flow, and it just kind of like it just just pummels there for days sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or even or even like Jackson Hole, same thing. We're talking about snow right now, so I thought I would at least mention it, but uh, we'll talk about it later. But we have our, uh, you know, forecast product that has forecast for all the uh, ski resorts, um, powder cast, we call it. Um, that's kind of one of the things I've been like one to take into account when our with our automatic um, uh, updating uh, ski product is to kind of try and take into some of this climatology to have a better forecast for some of these resorts. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. Powdercast is predicting three inches of snow at Steamboat this weekend. Seems reasonable. Yeah, sounds pretty good to me. I like the forecast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's got a it's got like one to 
one to two inches for some other resorts. But this week's um this weekend storm, like we talked about earlier, just really got isn't very strong at all. It's moving too quickly. Doesn't have a lot of moisture to work with. So it's no surprise. But it is a sign of the changing seasons. Oh yeah. That's for sure. <clears throat> yeah, you know, every little bit helps. Yes, it does. And there's always an end in sight. The nineties won't last forever. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're going skiing, I think it's a basin is open. It looks like Sunday you'll be having highs in the thirties with rain changing to snow, two inches of snow and 50 plus mile per hour winds. <laughs> Sounds great. That's <laughs> a great day of skiing. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's a jet. There's a, there's a somewhat of a decent jet with this system moving through and it's actually going to bring a lot of winds to the front range as well which before uh right around right around the time that front passes and before so it's not going to be good for the massive fires that are burning at least initially Mm -hmm. but after the front moves through then it'll you know it'll be cooler relative humidity will be higher with that pacific air mass moving in do we want to talk about the hurricane at all for the last point of the current weather discussion have you guys been following it I have. I haven't paid too much attention. So, as of 6 p.m. Central today, uh, it made landfall near Creole, Louisiana. I don't know if I said it right. Feel free to correct me, Matt. Um, Sounds strange. <laughs> not my with a category category two strength, 100 miles an hour. Yeah, I, I don't even know some of those names down there. <laughs> uh, it said that the a Florida coastal monitoring tower at Lake Arthur, Louisiana, reported a sustained wind of 77 and a gust to 96. Oh, okay. So that's uh, it's pretty pretty strong. And I guess storm surge was over eight feet above ground level at some kind of some station, some level, some gauge. So I I have a question about the winds, and let's see what you guys think. So you know how the the storm always gets. Like in this case, you said it was what 100 mile per hour category mm-hmm. two and made landfall, mm-hmm. and that's supposed to be the sustained winds. But when you get when you get the observations, there's almost never any observations that will live up to that, right? Yeah, that is yeah. true. So I mean, I know the like when you get the the winds over the open ocean are going to be much less. There's less friction there, so they're going to be faster. But when you get close to the shore. Mm-hmm. And you get over land, you know, the trees, the buildings, the different topography is going to be slowing the winds down a little bit. But exactly. even it seems like it seems like the water, like the winds, like whipping right off the ocean, like hitting the shore and never get measured at what they are supposed to be. Is that is it talking about you think they're measuring like 10 meter winds or 100 meter winds or something off the surface or estimating? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, because the winds. The wind speeds you see reported are gusts, and that's not even what that's even that's not even the real wind speed. The actual sustained wind speeds certainly less than those gusts. So I don't know. It just well, never yeah. makes doesn't really make sense. I think I think the I think the best point there was the one was the one you made about the you know the ocean not really having much of any friction up above the sur you know above you know aside from the ocean itself mm-hmm. as as opposed to um, when when the storm g- comes over land, it's like you know almost immediately the storm is experiencing conditions that are not natural to it, at least not for strengthening. So you know all of a sudden that that storm is 
is going to be, you know, almost immediately weakening because it just, because of all the friction it's dealing with and, you know, in the form of, you know, everything. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I've always wondered about, you know, you know, the, the offset between sustained winds and, and their respective gusts when the storm is o- over water and then the moment it goes over land it, it the storm never seems to produce as impressive of numbers as what the offshore um i guess max estimates are or or the actual the, the actual um measurements according to the recon flights yeah yeah so they they when they fly into the hurricane they're they're at an altitude of roughly 10,000 feet um that's one factor um the other factor probably also is that you know this the peak winds are really confined to a relatively small area when you compare it to the mm-hmm. whole radius of the storm so that's a good point how many how many anemometers are really in that, that path of narrow narrowest winds strongest winds there yeah i thought there was i was trying to look it up <laughs> while you guys were talking but i was trying to look up I thought there was some kind of a, oh yeah, okay. So there's a there's an adjustment factor you can do to estimate what the surface wind would be when they actually determine its maximum sustained wind. And so that can be sort of like an adjustment to be like, what would the actual surface wind potentially be? So to, to, to factor in the uh, friction that you mentioned earlier. Okay. Oh, interesting. So I think this is from, the, well, this one... I don't know if it's gospel or anything, but the adjustment factor would be like 0.9. It's like 90% of the maximum wind. So that, for example, if a buoy measures 80 mile an hour, eight minute average wind, the one minute average wind would be about 89 miles an hour. So I don't know. But (laughs) there's some kind of factor in there to uh, make it less. So Mm -hmm. I just can't remember what that is off the top of my head. (laughs) But yeah. But other than that, I don't. Yeah, I mean, we're up to four Greek letters. Yep. So. And counting. Epsilon and Zeta are not far behind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just wonder how far in the Greek alphabet we're going to get this time around and whether or not any of those Greek alphabet names are going to get retired, which. Interestingly enough, I learned a little bit about what would happen when a Greek name is retired. And the answer is, it's not really retired. They just (laughs) retire the name with the respective year. So if they decided that Delta were to be retired, then it would be... The name Delta itself would not be retired. It would just be Delta... To t- 2020 version. Oh man! Okay. Huh. Delta so 2020. <laughs> I did read. I did read part of that. I didn't know the second part of it that you mentioned about the year being appended. Yeah. I guess they don't want to mess up the Greek alphabet. They can't retire names out of it. Yeah, I guess they can't really. It's just if your house was destroyed by Hurricane Delta, you might have to deal with it a couple years later. Another Hurricane Delta destroying your other house. <laughs> <laughs> Guess they could start going into the Spanish alphabet if they really wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> or some other yeah. alphabet. 
Yeah, the Cyrillic alphabet in yeah. Eastern Europe. <laughs> it's oh the so any decisions about storm names being retired don't happen until the end of the hurricane season. I'm sure you guys know that, but I just wanted to point it out. You think anything will be retired this year? Ooh, I don't know. Laura there's been, like might. A, there's yeah. been a lot of storms that are borderline, I would say. Yeah. Think I would Laura? Think, I think Laura. I'd say Laura has the best chance. Sally might, but Laura I think will. Yeah. The damage was pretty pretty rough with Laura. Yeah. I agree. Fortunately, there's multiple spellings for Laura, so they could just bring it back with a different spelling. (laughs) 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 Which is the case for many names, I guess. To say about Delta, it looks like it's going to move up into the Mississippi Valley and then curve towards maybe Andy in North Carolina. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Say just just to our west a little bit, looks like, by Sunday. Sunday, Monday. Well, that's good for you. That means you'll get most of the rain, right? You have the center to your west. The range yeah, will be yeah. to the east. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So there's a nice line of flood watches going up towards you. So maybe you'll be issuing flood watches. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. It didn't look like we would get too much, but the look like the foothills were going to get a couple inches. Mm-hmm. Well, rain's always good. Indeed. <laughs> Wish Unless I remember it, what it was like. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Same. What a sad year. Indeed. <laughs> have hope. Have hope. That's right, Andy. <laughs> I still got hope. I think La Nina is going to give us a lot of little little snowstorms. Yeah. yeah. Next few months. Good. Yeah, that can be good. So, definitely some freezing drizzle. Looking forward to that. I oh, love no. chiseling ice off my windshield. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, got a, you got a garage. <laughs> wow, <that's, laughs> if I ever drive anywhere, which is unlikely. Ben, I think only meteorologists are the only type of people that like freezing drizzle. <laughs> I'll take it. Because <laughs> I don't have to drive across any bridges or overpasses. <laughs> and yeah, chiseling. I don't know about you, but every time it snows or freezing drizzles, I drive my car out of the garage. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that would be something a meteorologist would do them to <laughs> take their car out of the garage the night before the snowstorm. <laughs> Just so they can clean it off. No, it looks like we covered everything from our current weather discussion. Do we want to move into our lightning round? Let's do it. Sure. Lightning round. <laughs> Perfectly named. This will probably take us about 20 minutes or more. Yeah, we we're going to talk about uh, weather models, which... Um, kind of delves into this thing we call numerical weather prediction. So, well, it's somewhat complex, but we're going to break it down for you so you can understand. <clears throat> I'm sure you've read most of the posts. If you do read the posts, we always talk about model or forecast guidance or high resolution output, something like that. And we usually mean that we're talking about a weather model, um, like a numerical Uh, weather prediction model Um, yeah models are the single most important tool i would say to a meteorologist even though there's a whole bunch of them but as a collective group models are the most important yep i would concur i mean when you go into meteorology as a you know as your 
area of study for your career. You really get forced to take all these math classes. But as soon as you graduate, more or less, you can just stare at the models and not have to worry about the math to some degree. Of yeah. course, we're all math experts, but... <laughs> I don't know about calculus, that. Calculus, <laughs> linear algebra, differential equations. Of course, if you... If you talk to some of the, the old school meteorologists that I've spoken to since joining the Air Force, they always say, don't, don't underestimate one's ability to go outside and take observations based on what they're seeing. Because apparently that is a, uh, that is a skill that's kind of being lost. Mm -hmm. And, well... To that, I'm not certain if it's necessarily being lost, but maybe not as much of an emphasis as was placed on it, you know, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, now we got satellites and computers doing everything. Yeah. You know, Joe Schmo on the ground doesn't need to be taking observations as, <laughs> as much as uh, he might have been doing in the 70s or 50s. <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely important to be you know, to be able to connect the models to what you're seeing outside. and Right. I think that's probably what they meant. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a good forecaster in our, our office, and uh, he talks about being situation, situationally aware. So, like, knowing when you come into the office or getting acclimated about, like, what's going on right now. So using satellite observations and even, like, hand drawing a weather map like we used to do in our college year years <laughs> so uh to give you a well-rounded idea of you know what's going on right now and then actually looking into the forecast models which we'll get into here yeah i i've actually heard that exact same thing in the air force side of things too but it's true though that's kind of gone by the wayside because as ben said we have so much computer uh programming right now that's kind of like somewhat doing away with some of that yeah so i don't know how you guys want to start this off but uh, essentially i try to when i tried to explain what a weather model was to um some kids i think a year ago because <laughs> uh, uh -huh. like they, one of the questions they had was like what's a weather model <laughs> and so i was like oh gosh how are you gonna do this <laughs> yeah that's third, a tough one third graders you know kind of thing but uh I was like, I try to think of it as sort of like a video game. Um, it's not really a direct kind of one-to-one -one relationship, mm -hmm. I guess. But you're basically, you know, like a model is sort of like trying to simulate what the atmosphere will be like the next seven days, sometimes 15 days or a couple of weeks. And as opposed to like a video game where actually you're controlling the game you're letting the weather model kind of like do its own thing. And it takes into account like a number of, uh, as Ben said, we did a lot of math in college. So it takes into account all the equations that try to describe how the atmosphere work, works and how it, how it rotates um, and moves, sort of like a fluid and like, like water going down a river. And so it takes into account a variety of physics and math equations. But there's also a large part of it that we still don't understand, like the lowest part of the atmosphere, like we call the we call it the boundary layer, where we don't have a really good understanding of like what goes on. We have a lot of 
theory involved, um, but there's a lot of stuff that's kind of unsolved in that part of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so it's a mix of like theory and also a lot of equations. And so they're not they're not perfect uh, by any means. And yeah, I would, I would say that things are even more complicated now than than they were before the pandemic started because of the uh, the reduction in in uh, airline flights. Because that's one of the things. And among you know, among several things that get ingested into these models for um, for for the uh, for for like the the best guess, the first the first best guess, mm -hmm. and uh, and all the and all the following time frames that that come into the model after after that first guess of the zero hour model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. You know, we're never going to see a huge drop in airline traffic like this. Well, hopefully we never see it again, but you never know. Yeah. It's kind of like going back to 9-11 with the, the, you know, the five-day period where there was no flights in the whole United States. Mm -hmm. And just, I don't know, there'll be a lot. But this, but this is more on a global scale now, of course, than the U.S. So there's still some planes flying, of course. But it's interesting to see how that'll... I don't know. I'm sure there'll be some studies about it coming out in Nature or something. Oh, I'm sure there will be. <laughs> there'll be a handful of Nature papers. There always is. <laughs> <laughs> there'll be. A, it, it's you know it's going to be affecting a lot of different fields. So and weather's one of them. So mm -hmm. there'll be there'll be look you know there'll be a lot of studies that come out about you know how how the reduc reduction in flights has impacted um, you know. Uh, weather forecasting as a whole yeah yeah that's a good that's a good uh segue into kind of data assimilation so what do we mean by that but that's just basically that the models are only as good as the data that you the initial data that you put into them which matt already touched on a little bit so you know the the data assimilation they take data from I don't know, probably thousands or even more sources from around the world and just conglomerate it into a format that the model can understand. And then that's what they use to initialize all the equations. So we got things like satellites coming in there, different observations from airplanes like Matt mentioned. Um, what else do we got? Soil moisture, just, just temperatures at every airport. Mm -hmm. All kinds of satellite data looking down, taking observations of moisture in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Drop sounds from aircraft, as you mentioned earlier. Yep. Yeah, drop sounds and uh, radio sounds, which I had some experience launching radio sounds. You guys have done that too, right? Yep. No, I haven't yet. <laughs> you haven't? <laughs> oh, I like. I like. I like to. <laughs> that was Are the you... official the official radio sound launcher for Greenland. Oh, nice. For several months, probably. It's cool. I did so it. That was that was a lot of yep. fun. I did it once at the for a field mission in Nebraska. Okay. Yep. Did you get your data ingested into the global models? Uh no, unfortunately. I forget the no. name of the system, but whenever you like sync it up, it syncs up with their. Well, I forget what the name it is. It goes to the WMO, the World Meteorological Organization. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it was in this case. But that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, I have a lot of crazy stories from launching, trying to launch, you know, radio songs, huge helium balloon um, <laughs> in the middle of a blizzard. And it's super cold. <laughs> Can't see anything. So there, there were many times I launched a balloon. And so there's, a, there's actually an art to launching them that you'll discover after a while from you basically like hold it and you give it like a little nudge and it's just like the helium pulls it right out of your hand, takes it straight up. <laughs> so there's this, there's this art to it. So, but if it's, you know, 40, 50 mile per hour winds, that's not working very well. The balloons bouncing off everything. It's hitting you in the face. You're, <laughs> you're, uh, as soon as you let the balloon go, it goes immediately sideways, drags across the ground for a while. Wow. Um, if you're lucky, you can. If you're lucky, it'll take off properly. But yeah. Um, but those um those balloons were fun. I forget how much uh, the instrument, the radio sound, um, actually cost. But we never got any of those back. Have you guys ever found a radio sound? No. From the climate prediction center or whatever it would be, storm prediction center. We had someone call into our office maybe a month ago, and they said they had one. And they were like asking us how to return it, but they have a really nice way of returning it. Like there's a return envelope inside the box, and it tells you where to where to send it. But I think it's pretty rare that someone returns it. They either keep it or it's just in the middle of the of the woods or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, for the for the listeners, those balloons they go up in the atmosphere, you know, pretty much to the top of the atmosphere, weight almost to the edge of space. And then the, the pressure from inside the balloon gets too strong compared to the, the basically no pressure outside the balloon. The balloon just explodes. And then, it, and then it falls back down to the ground. Presumably within like, I don't know, 100 miles or so where it went up. Maybe a couple hundred miles, depending on the, the wind speeds. Yeah, there's a video, I think, of, of that. Like, there's a video of someone launching their weather balloon mm-hmm. and you can see it pop and then come back down to the earth that's pretty cool yeah oh, yep when i was teaching at a at a high school in boulder i we we launched we launched weather balloons on and uh each time we tried to retrieve the the weather balloon and the payload that we had on it and uh each time we were successful in retrieving it but unfortunately, we were unable to get um, an entire video shot of the launch because we did not have the proper batteries and the proper camera to uh, to to uh, video record the whole thing. So usually, after about an hour, the video would go out. And like it got too cold. Yeah, it just got too cold, and we didn't have ultimate lithium batteries, so we just. Oh man! Yeah, so it's too yeah. bad. Well, GoPro you... was was like the ideal camera for that, but none of us had a GoPro. Wow, that'd have been pretty cool. Yeah, see like the curvature of the Earth and get way up there. Yeah, I think the I think the launch velocity in our case was actually a lot slower because uh, we lost quite a bit of helium in the <laughs> in the in the tank. Just, mm-hmm. just because of pressure or something didn't make any sense to me. But anyway, we did. And so the, the launch speed of the balloon was about half of what it should have been. And it took the balloon like 
oh, four man. or five hours to get back to the ground when it usually only takes like a couple hours. <clears throat> That's not what you want to see. I've nope. been there. <laughs> <laughs> I forget which time zone Greenland was in, but basically if you did the like evening radio sound, I guess it would have been like nine or 10 o'clock at night. If you did that one, you basically had to wait for the, the thing to pop before you get yet then before you could push this button to send it to the WMO. So as soon as it popped, you had to recognize it and then you could basically close it out and send the data. But if it took longer, then you're just then you're just gonna be up until one in the morning, two in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Waiting for this balloon to pop if you didn't fill it up with helium. Fill it up with enough helium. I always made sure to get enough. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I wish I could do that. And this very um the there's a lot of it's very strict on what you can do like you're not supposed to touch the balloon with your hands uh, because like the oil from your hands does something to the balloon to like weaken it yeah so it, pop, so it pops faster oh. i think that was it so if you like touch it and mess it up like your balloon could make it up to maybe like half the atmosphere and then it would pop because hmm. the oil like freezes or something i don't know yeah um, during the field mission we were forced to wear um, latex gloves while we were handling the balloon as well. Yeah, you always you always wear latex gloves. Hmm. And there was like this very you had to wrap this uh, I don't know what that's called. Well, like a measuring measuring tape around the balloon to get make sure it was the exact radius you wanted it to be. That that's that's going into how much helium's in there. So there was like all these rules you had to do. So it was a it was cool. I think the. WMO was very happy to be having one of those observations coming from Greenland. Oh, for sure. We didn't really, well, we didn't mention it, but they're, those are one of the things that's done all around the world. Everyone launches a balloon at the exact same time all across the planet. And then those go straight into the weather models, which is pretty remarkable if you think about it. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah. Like the whole operating together to collect, to collect pretty much the exact same data at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Every day, twice a day. So it's yeah. pretty cool. And it's important. Yeah. <clears throat> and I don't know what I was going to say <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, yeah, do you guys think we will see a time in our lives whenever we're no longer launching radio songs? Oh, like yeah. sooner, sooner or later, there's going to be like some satellite technology or something that just blows away radio songs, I would think. Hmm. That's and you guys think they're a combination of multiple satellites where they can retrieve the temperature and relative humidity of the whole. They can already do that to some degree. With accuracy and with high res, though? Yeah. yeah. That would be the question, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. If somebody comes up with this amazing combination of wavelengths that can get everything that a radioson gets, I don't know. I think there's there could be a day when we don't launch them anymore. I think one day, for sure. I just don't know how far into the future. The fact that the fa- the fact that we've seen these seen the models kind of underperform with respect to these to the reduction in airplanes is kind of discouraging my thoughts of um you know you know the models being like self sustain self sustaining to some extent so my uh yeah. my confidence in tech and you know advanced technology is in in terms of like weather forecasting and and you know things in our field is starting to uh may maybe decrease a little bit 
as opposed to where where it had been before the pandemic started. <laughs> that goes <laughs> that goes into a little bit of a comment, I guess, for a data assimilation that Ben discussed earlier. But you have so much observations going into the model. There's global and regional, but you have millions of observations around the globe going in, but only a very small fraction of those end up being used to initialize or update the model to a certain starting point. Um, I was doing some of this in my previous job, but you know, it's just like you can rank it by like which platform and which observation has the most impact at, you know, impacting your forecast in the next uh, 24, 48, 72 hours or out to seven days. I think radio sounds rank pretty high up there in the in the column in terms of their impact. Um, but there are definitely some satellites that are definitely improving. Um, I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime, but I would probably think hopefully toward the latter half, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some satellites. That, there's some, well, there's some things that are just super easy to sense, like sea surface temperatures. It's pretty cut and dry. Like satellites can definitely do that. But there's other things like high resolution moisture content in the in the atmosphere you know a vertical profile of that it's pretty difficult to retrieve that you know from passive microwave sensors um combination with different bands using water vapor absorption so it's definitely trickier and you know the radio sounds are always going to be well calibrated and they're always going to be what we take is you know the true values yeah yeah, I think well, I so, guess one of the main, main one of the main differences there, I guess, is that a satellite is kind of measuring what's going on in the atmosphere in an indirect way. It doesn't have a yeah. it's not like a direct measurement. So you're sort of like inferring what the temperature or the moisture could be like by combining different uh, factors mm-hmm. that you know about the atmosphere. Okay. That's the easy way to explain. And then the the radio sound is actually directly measuring the temperature, the moisture, the the wind speed, the pressure, and it, it, you know, that's usually what happens to where like your your best observations are the ones that are directly observing what's going on, and that's, you know, but the models like Matt said is uh, they're 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 hard to budge, you know, any one way with a certain number of observations, and they have the assimilation system calibrated to where if a certain observation is like seemed bogus or it's outside the some kind of bound that they set then they throw it out so yeah mm. they don't they don't want to like skew the model one way or the other but the downside is that you may be you may not be capturing some of the important changes from the observation so I mean, that was probably too, probably too much isn't <laughs> yeah. isn't that well along that same line isn't that like part of the classic story about how the ozone hole was discovered where they basically for years, they had been throwing out the observations of the ozone hole, having that little ozone because they thought it was, a, you know, bad data. Am I making this up? This is a real thing, right? <laughs> I don't know. I, but that's I can't remember, but it sounds cool. I'm pretty sure, like, for <laughs> multiple years, they were no one knew the ozone hole existed, even though they had the data. It just like kept getting filtered out by their, wow. um, by their whatever algorithms they had for measuring it. And then eventually, somebody's like, "Ah, oh, these is this is real data." There's actually no ozone right there. (laughs) How did you not know this? 
<laughs> so yeah, the, the, those automated systems like that to, to te- detect bad observations and things like that can be good, but also can be bad, as Andy yeah. mentioned. Yeah, it's just yeah. an example. So just briefly here at the end to wrap up some just so there's different types of models. They all pretty much take in the same data, but as we talked about, they're going some the data that they the exact data they use is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be weighted differently. Um, and then all of the different equations and styles and math that goes into the models, the models, the various models is going to be different. Yeah. So the big models that we like to talk about, uh, the global models, the GFS, the Canadian model, the European model, those are all models that forecast for the entire planet. I know Andy likes the Canadian. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> I Yeah. Well, GFS, we mean Global Forecast System, and it's just an acronym. Um, uh, we have many acronyms in the models. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Actually, I, I learned a fun fact maybe several months ago in my previous job, but did you guys know that the European actually isn't called the European model? It's actually the IFS, Integrated Forecast System. <laughs> I did not. I but I don't think that. anyone, no one calls it that. So <laughs> I think it's actually called IFS. <laughs> wow. Does the, do you think everyone in Europe calls the GFS the American model? <laughs> like, like generalize their model and call it the European model. <laughs> we do generalize the Canadian model. The Canadian model has a real name too, right? I forget what that one is. Uh, I think it's called it's like, Gen, the GEM. G-E-M. What's the E-M? Oh, what's the G- E? GEM, Global Environmental Model, maybe? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I guess they would say American model. I don't know. I guess they probably do. <laughs> you might have to ask them. Uh, Steiner, do you use the NAVGEM, which is the Navy, a Navy model? You're in the Air uh, Force. No, we do not. I don't think you we have access that. to it. I don't know. I don't know. I've never tried. I mean, we... We to this day still still just use the Gowan model, so yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely a lot of models, and we have regional regional models too. So on our website, you can find the NAM, which is North American Mesoscale, which I believe several years ago it used to be called the ETA. ETA. It wasn't estimated time of arrival, but it, I think it was the uh, <laughs> what was it called? ETA. I don't. I don't remember being called ADA. I remember yeah. it being called something else. Yeah, it was like it was like the ADA model, but I don't remember what it was called, like what it stood for. I don't know. I gotta look this up now. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's now it was now the NAM. I don't know what it was. That was a long time ago when I was in college. <laughs> but you even have models for the hurricanes. So one of the regional hurricane models is the. HWRF, it's just HWRF, but it's like the hurricane weather research and forecast model. And forecasters will just say HWRF. Yeah, you're pretty familiar with that one, aren't you? Yeah, and it's pretty popular in um, in in NOAA and inside the uh, facility down in Miami, Florida. Uh, they use it quite quite religiously. What made it beneficial over some of the other models? Uh, I wouldn't say it's like superior over anything. I mean, I think forecasters use a variety of global and regional, but I think the one advantage of it is it can <clears throat> it includes the ocean as something that will can 
be modeled inside of it. So it, the model, the ocean is allowed to kind of change with how the atmosphere changes. Right. Whereas a global model has a fixed ocean temperature at the start date when the model starts. So that's one advantage. It's also high resolution. Um, and we say high resolution because I'd explain that, but essentially uh, we break up a model into many like grid, like a grid more or less. And so like it has a smaller number of, has a larger number of small squares that kind of like outline how a model works or like where the model runs on. So like essentially a grid, but uh, I'm kind of butchering that. But uh, essentially. Just think of it as like TVs. <laughs> yeah. Pixels. High, like yeah, high, pixels. high definition TV. <laughs> the pixels are smaller. Yep. Yeah. High res. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> 4K TV. Yeah, instead of one pixel for all of Colorado, you get one pixel for just North Boulder, something like that. Yeah, that's good. I like that. That's better. <laughs> I like that too. So, yeah, it's higher, higher resolution. So it's able to capture some of the, uh, some of those smaller scale events inside the storm yeah as time goes on the computers are getting more powerful we're seeing the the resolutions go down well get smaller or higher resolution sorry (laughs) it's confusing smaller pixels (laughs) yeah so it seems like just in the last five years we've seen uh most of the major models have gotten upgraded at least one maybe even two times to get higher resolution yeah, it's, it's 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 getting harder and harder to actually beat a model. Um, you can you can definitely beat it, but it's getting hard to discount some of them. Like I think there was, we were talking about the September snowstorm, and I remember Ben and I were like saying that it was seeing the storm like a week out. You know, I mean, I didn't see like the details, but you could see the hints of it kind of trending that way. So. Um, they're getting better every year. Yeah. Brings up a good point. Do we really even need meteorologists? As good as the models are these days. Well, Funny. for as, mi- as many forecasts as they as the models will get right, they'll also, you know, miss storms a week out. So to yeah. an extent, they're very good. But at a certain point, you gotta ask yourself how accurate is the model beyond three days? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess it also depends on what you're looking for in the model. That's true. Yeah, there was a, I didn't go to the conference, but there was some of my coworkers that went to the virtual National Weather Association annual conference. And I guess they had a talk. Someone was talking about machine learning and I guess how that could be used in the weather field. So I think that's kind of a ways off right now, but it's something that could happen, you know, where... The models get good enough, and then they can do some machine learning that could mm-hmm. generate your forecast for like a week. And it may not capture the anomalous events, which is where the forecasters, I think, would come in. Mm-hmm. And especially like issuing warnings. Like, I think it'd be hard to train a computer to see like a tornadic cell, but who knows? I mean, with computers these days, like, I'm amazed that a computer can read, a, read an image and pick out words. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah and then we were talking about that last couple weeks ago so who knows I yeah mean, who knows what it'll be like in in 20 years or 10 years yeah i don't know it'd be interesting to see how they the different techniques that could be used 
to apply machine learning to forecasting as an alternative to the models. Mm -hmm. Like if you have this certain pattern, three days later, it's going to be this. Yeah. There's no, it's not necessarily math involved, like the same type of math at least, but it, you know, it could be interesting to see where that goes. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Machine learning is all the rage these days, so I'm sure people are already working on the early foundations for that. Anything else we should mention about weather models, data assimilation? Well, I guess just remind, just reiterating that the models are only as good as the data that you, the observations that you put into them. And your forecast is only as good as the meteorologist interpreting the models. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I would say. Meteorologists are still important. I agree to this day. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys have heard the the phrase garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> but it refers to what Ben said about he put if you have bad observations going into the model, then you're gonna have a terrible forecast <laughs> from, yeah. from the weather from the model itself. <laughs> and that's also where the forecaster comes into play is they, they can pick out something that looks bogus and something that doesn't look doesn't look right. Doesn't look real. Yeah. Or they've seen that pattern before, and they're like, no, I, I don't see that. I don't buy that. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, should we wrap it up here? Or what do you guys think? I think we did a good job there. We covered everything. I so. Yeah, I think Ben has some reminders here before we head out. Well, yeah, we already touched on a little bit just about our Powdercast product that is already up and running for you guys. It'll update twice a day. You can find that on our website. And yeah, other than that, just remember to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. We've been doing pretty consistently, you know, every two weeks or so putting out a podcast. And I think we had a we had a lot of listeners for ours, our prehistoric snowstorm podcast that me and Andy did that Matt unfortunately couldn't make it to. But that was a fun one. So we'll probably be doing more of those um, kind of current event, big storm uh, type of podcasts because there's nothing more exciting than I watch a meteorologist talking about weather for a huge snowstorm. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys are up for it, but uh, if anyone has questions out there, uh, we could always start a new segment of the podcast toward the end and be like, ask a meteorologist, where you could just kind of like send us in your questions. Anything related to the weather, we can answer it on our podcast. That's, that's good. We used to do that before. We had some good questions, so maybe we'll bring that back. We also have a huge backlog of questions from various readers, so we could dig into there if we needed. Okay, yeah, sure. That sounds <laughs> good to me. Tackle some of those questions, but, well, that's all I got, so thanks for listening. Yeah, take care, guys. Take care, everyone. <laughs>